We're looking at Malachi chapter 3 uh, this morning, and I'm going to start off just by reading uh, that part of the word, and then we'll pray. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And if kids haven't left, they can leave and do so while I'm praying. Father, we just come to you this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the text. Uh, Father, it is a great time of year when we contemplate that first advent. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of purity, the promise of being refined. May we as your church, Lord, not resist your hands of bleaching us, scouring us, shaping us so that we can be pure before you. Lord God, the promise has been fulfilled. That advent has come and gone. And we look forward, Lord, to your son's return again. We pray now that you would just open our hearts and our minds as we study your word. And may we just put aside those things in our everyday life that would tend to block out and crowd the message that you have for us through your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's already been explained to you this morning, we are celebrating the first Advent. Advent simply is an old English word meaning to arrive, to come. Uh, it is a portent, a prophecy, if you will, that something major, something important is going to happen. And so it was in that first Advent. We have our houses decorated. We have uh, all kinds of really beautiful ornaments up, and we're getting gifts prepared to put under a tree. Uh, but when we think of Christmas, as we call it in this country, we think of warm, glowing lights. We think of gentleness. We think of possibly a star shining down through the roof of a beaten-up manger or into the opening of a cave where the baby Jesus has just come forth with shepherds kneeling outside and angels on top of farm animals making their noises and all through that time and that night we hear the wail of a baby and those are all exciting and that's what we want to teach our children but when we come to Malachi chapter 3 and we read this as an Advent passage we have to do some uh, exegetical gymnastics to get ourselves there, don't we? Uh, if you were following along with me in your word as I was reading, you have to be saying to yourself, what does this have to do with Christmas? Why are we reading this now? Well, let's take it apart. Let's take a look at it. Uh, it starts off with a direct command. Behold, uh, it's a visual command to look. You know, behold what I'm going to show you. I send my messenger. 
God is going to be sending somebody, and he will prepare the way before me. Uh, this is a play on words. Malachi is saying, basically, behold, I send Malachi. Uh, in the Hebrew, this word for messenger is actually his name, Malachi, right? It is something that uh, he wants to put in here, saying that I've been sent by God to the people of Israel to be his messenger. I am bringing with me his directions to you. Um, and the people who he was preaching to would have recognized that. They would have kind of thought, oh, okay, so you are the man coming with the importance, the command of the Father. We should listen to you. And so Malachi is saying, behold, look, don't let this pass you by. Uh, don't just ignore this message. I am the messenger, and I'm going to tell you something. And this whole section of Scripture is rotating around the concept of covenant, a promise between two people. One is God saying, I will be your God if you're my faithful people. And the second one is the people of Israel saying, we will respond to such love and grace and providence and strength and power and judgment. We need to renew this covenant. And in fact, as you buzz through the uh, Old Testament, especially the closing books and starting with the major prophets and going through the 12 minor prophets, you're going to be impressed with this is a very uh, recognizable message. Uh, Malachi really isn't saying anything that you haven't read before. If you try to put your fingers between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, the close of the book of Malachi, the opening of the uh, Gospel of Matthew, you will notice that it's the same message. God has created a covenant with his people, and they're waiting for it to be fulfilled. So, it's no wonder that Mal Malachi is writing, Behold, here it is. Pay attention. And the Lord whom you seek, notice that it anticipates, it's, it's stating that the reader or listener to this prophecy is waiting for something to happen. This one you seek will suddenly, without warning, will come into the temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Two times we are promised that he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, now we've changed pronouns, we've changed descriptors here. Before, it was just, I, Jehovah, send my messenger, and now we're talking about the Lord of hosts. And of course, the Lord of hosts is a military form. This is God in his might, God in his power. The Lord of hosts is coming. He's not coming to have tea with us. He's not coming to sit and have a gentle conversation. He is bringing his army. Who are the hosts but the angelic armies that he commands? That messenger is saying, behold, be ready. He is coming. And who can endure this? There's two verbs used here. Who can endure it and who can stand it when he appears? It is saying, basically, we're assuming that no one can. You're not going to be able to endure. Uh, you're not going to be able to stand when this God comes, when this messenger is arriving he will be like, and then there's two descriptors. There's a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. 
And as we look through that, we think, well, a refiner's fire. Well, we should be pretty familiar with that. If you're a reader of the Old Testament, this is used over 100 times in the Word of God. Now, there's all kinds of fires, right? There is just fire, the kind of thing that just burns and, and it destroys uh, without discrimination. Anything you put into it will be consumed, and from the smoke will come ashes. Uh, when I was a boy and I'd go to my grandma's house in Eagle Grove, Iowa, we loved coming from Omaha to there because we knew, my cousins and I, that there was a particular job that we had to do, and we loved it. And that was taking the trash out of the house, out to the back, by the alley, there was a big fire barrel, and we got to light things on fire. I, I, how does it get better than that, you know? And uh, we separated the glass from the metal and put those in a different bin, but anything that could be consumed by fire went into that barrel. When I was very young, my grandfather, of course, would oversee that, but wisely or not, as I got older, uh, we were allowed to go do that on our own. And of course, boys being boys, we would hunt around the neighborhood for anything else that we could put in that barrel that might be consumable, such as other cousins' dolls, you know, books we didn't really want to read. Uh, if you know me now, you're like, what? You burn books? Yes, we burned anything that would burn, right? There's just something about fire, its consumption, its, its ability, its power that just is fascinating. And we would look through the little holes in the side of the fire barrel all the way around as things would just be dissolved. Well, there's a second kind of fire. There's an incinerator. There's a furnace. It's designed to give warmth, to give heat. We burn things so that we can have the benefit of them. And then there's a third one, and that's what's in view here, this refiner's fire. This is a fire that's under control. This is a fire that... Someone has created to make a product. It is an artisan, someone who has skills. They're going to use the fire to achieve a purpose. And the messenger is saying, when the Lord comes, who can endure it? Who can stand it? No one. But let me say, what is going to happen when he comes, even though it may be painful, even though it's given the identity of fire, is going to be something that is going to change your life. What does a refiner do? He takes products that eventually will become gold and silver, that is ore, and he melts it. He puts it in the refiner's fire, and what is left is a liquid object that he can put into any mold that he wishes, and then when that is done, you will have a gold or a silver something, something of great value. Now this messenger is saying this is what's gonna happen to God's people. You're going to go through the refiner's fire. And like fuller's soap, two things. One, you're burning away uh, impurities so that you have something that is pure in the end. And the second thing is that you're going to be scoured, scrubbed, bleached, if you will, so that all things that are tainted or unclean are removed. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for full, uh, word full means to brighten to glisten, to be made white. Uh, in Jesus' days, outside of Jerusalem, outside the walls of the city, where was an area where the fullers held shop. And people would bring back garments, 
curtains, anything that needed to be scrubbed, specifically the priest's robes and garments that had been splattered with blood from the sacrifices at the temple. They had to be made clean and pure. And the fullers would take it, not only would they scrub it, but they would do their process in which they put heavy uh, toxic bleaches in there, and they would make sure that that was as clean as could possibly be cleaned. I love the imagery in uh, Mark chapter 9, where Jesus has taken aside several of his chief disciples, and they have traveled a distance, and there Jesus, in a sense, reveals himself in his glory. We call it the transfiguration. Uh, It's the only time in his earthly ministry that humans have a chance to see Jesus as something other than the fulfillment of the incarnational prophecy, that we see him as God. And it says in chapter 9, verse 3, that he is so bright, he is so white in this garment. It's not like any kind of whiteness that can be achieved by cleaning, by the fuller. It does, it's just not going to be possible. It's a divine brightness, right? Well, that's what's, that's what's predicted here in Malachi, that this is going to be a refining fire. It's going to be the fuller soap. He will, and as it says here in the next part, he will refine and purify the silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and he will refine them like what? like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Who's going to be going through this process according to Malachi? Well, it's the church leaders. It's those who work in the temple. It's the Levites and the priests. You see, these are the people who are supposed to be the mediators between the people of God and God himself. Remember I mentioned at the beginning that covenant relationship. It had gotten quite rocky if not, had disappeared in the day of Malachi. This is after all the things that had happened in Jewish history. They had come back from their diaspora, and they were gathered again, and they were trying to rebuild the uh, temple, and they were wanting to reestablish their covenant. But they had a major problem. The people, the men that were supposed to communicate the will of God and to be the ones that took care of your sacrifice to atone for your sin, they weren't doing their job, at least not with the right heart. They were overcharging. They were making money. They were not letting people worship in the way that they should worship. And Malachi says, we're going to start there. I think there's a word to the wise there, isn't there? For all of us who would stand before people and say that we speak for God, or that we communicate the sacraments, that we are the ones who lead in confession and the Lord's Prayer and communion. Purifying? Who can stand? Who can endure? It's going to start with us. When I pray for revival for this country, for this county, for this city, for the University of Iowa, I always start with me. I always start with our pastoral staff. I always start with our elders, our deacons. You see, that's where real refinement happens. People, well-meaning people, 
can too often think they're doing the work of God and somehow the things of life get in the way and the enemy is able to distract us and to lead our vision off to the wrong sides and God has to say, no, let's go back. Let's refine. Let's purify. We know from Hebrews chapter 5 that suffering is a part of the Christian life. Even the Lord himself, it says in Hebrew 5, had to suffer in order for him to be a pure man, in order for him to experience the maturity in Christ. I, I'm in my 60s, and I was just having this conversation the other day with God. How, how, how old do I have to be when this stops? Because it hasn't stopped. God is constantly refining me. God is constantly purifying me. I hope that from this corpus of a person that I am, that there could be even but an ounce of pureness of gold. And the only thing that I can do to look at this is to look at Christ. It focuses my attention on him and on that cross because through him, I'm everything he wants, right? Jesus did it the right way. Jesus was the man of purity. Jesus is gold. And because he is, I can be. So can you. We have to trust in him. The worst response to this passage is for us to walk away and go, oh, okay, I, I don't want to go through this process, so what can I do to avoid it? How can I be a better person? How can I be a stronger Christian? I, I, God, show me, what am I doing that's wrong? And I'll just take it off. And I'll, uh, no. No amount of self-effort can do what God wants to do through you and to you. Malachi's not saying, hey, I'll tell you what, you guys just go ahead and work on this and we'll come back and check and see if you need to be purified. You know, God wants 24 karat Christians. He wants Christians that have been through the refining fire. He wants us to have been scrubbed clean, and that happens through the blood of Christ. It's a process, and it never, never, never finishes. Not in this lifetime. God will take us through us, where we need to be, how we need to get there. As tough as life may seem at times, we have to view it. Like, God, you're refining me right now. You're purifying me right now. Can I endure it? Can I stand it? At times it seems like, no, <laughs> I can't. But through the power of God and through his Holy Spirit, yes, it can. I mentioned earlier, there is other kinds of fires. And if you were to continue on reading to verse 5, you would see that that consuming kind of fire that can burn, <coughs> excuse me, anything is envisioned in verse 5, as in contrast to the refiner's fire, he says, Then I will draw near to you in judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I'll take care of those people. That's not who I have in view here. We think, well, this refining fire has got to be for the rest of the world, right? Oh, it's for us. Once God's done with the church leadership, he's going to move on down through the rank and file. 
Every one of us who claims that we know Jesus Christ as Savior are going to go through this process. This is the promise, the messenger. And you're thinking, well, that's, that's fascinating, Dave. But what does that have to do with Christmas? Why are we reading this passage? I mean, like I said, there's, there's hundreds of references to the refining fire that we find in the Word of God. Well, we could just leave Malachi right where Malachi is, except for a small problem. When we get to the Gospel of Matthew, and this is amazing, you know, before, between the close of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and the beginning of Matthew, most of us are aware, there's a significant amount of time, some 400 years. H.A. Uh, Ironside calls it the 400 years of silence. God's people don't hear from God. After prophet, 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 after prophet pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, God causing the sun to stand still, Israel defeating its enemies, the temple being constructed, Solomon bringing all of the offerings in there for the first time, and then because of Israel's sin, there's nothing. We could close the Bible at Malachi chapter 4. Leave it there. We don't need it. The rest of the story? But there is a rest of the story. You see, in the Old Testament, in Malachi's day, that messenger was promised. That, that is a prophecy that we were reading. The messenger, behold, the messenger is coming. And as far as Malachi is concerned, that was probably him. But as we read through that, we think, no, that can't be the end of the story because there's too much listed here. So what do we do with that? 400 years between the close of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, the birth narratives in Matthew and in Luke of that, of that moment when God becomes incarnate, when that baby's cry pierces the night sky, when the angels go and tell the shepherds in their fields, go, go to town. Something amazing has happened. It happened. The first advent, the promise of his coming, it came. And we just sang, it came upon a midnight clear. I don't know what the sky was like, but we know it came. The greatest moment in human history, it came. And like I said, all of those promises in the Old Testament would stand, and we could leave them alone, except we get to Matthew chapter 11, and Jesus, who's doing the speaking here, says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, and this is John the Baptist, John his cousin. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Ah, here's that verb. Behold, it's an imperative command. Pay attention. Don't let this pass you by. Where did we hear that before? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? But a prophet. 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. And all of a sudden we find coming from the lips of our Savior the quotation of what we just read in Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus, once again, and he does this all through his ministry life, reaches back into the Old Testament and rips a verse which seems to be out of exegetical context, and he brings it forward for his purposes, and he plops it down right in front of us, and he demands that we pay attention to it. And he basically is saying, John is the messenger. John the Baptist, that hairy man, that locust eater, He's the one who's the messenger. And we have already passed by when Jesus was baptized, right? Back in the early part of this gospel narrative, when Jesus appeared on the banks of the river, and his cousin John points at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. He truly was the messenger. What was John's message? John's message was to repent. John's message was that you are not sufficient in and of yourself before God. His kingdom cannot come the way that you are. Come into the waters to reflect your change of heart, and I will baptize you. That was his entire message. He was refining. He was purifying. Like a fire. Like a scouring brush. John is the messenger But he is not the object of the message, is he? Or the subject of the message. It's all about Jesus. But Jesus goes on and says, uh, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, that is John, from the days of John the Baptist until uh, now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent violent have taken it by force. For all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John. So he's saying all those other Old Testament prophets, they did a great job, but no one paid any attention to them. But John has come. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The message of Malachi today cannot be missed. We look at it from our perspective in the 2000s and ever since the time of Christ and recognize that Malachi's message, behold, I send you a messenger, is fulfilled by John the Baptist coming. We put that together in that Christmas story. You know, as we think about events, important things that happen, These people were looking forward to the first advent in the Old Testament. When is this messenger coming? When is the Lord coming, the purifier? When is he going to be here so that we can practice enduring and standing? Well, life has many, many historical events, doesn't it? I mean, think about it just on one level. I see it in three levels. Uh, But on one level, we have things that happen to you and me all the time. Uh, And the way I'm characterizing this is when these things happen, uh, we're never the same afterwards, right? I'm not talking about, oh, my shoelaces need tight, or I made dinner last night, or whatever. 
But I'm talking about life-changing events in my first category here. When you get your career job, you've, you've trained, you've practiced, you've spent gobs of money getting ready for it, and bow, man, there you go. Now you are a teacher, you're a doctor, you're an engineer, you are a handyman, whatever it is, that's you, that's your identity. There really is no going back from there, is there? I mean, it may change, it may alter, it may do this, it may do that, but you see yourself that way, and others do too. I remember after nine years of school and a lot of, uh, a lot of work and you know, opportunities to apprentice and all kinds of things, that my wife and I drove up to O'Neill, Nebraska after graduating from Dallas Seminary, and we got situated. The church had called us in June, but it took almost two months for us to get moved and do all the things that we have to do. There's a miracle in Ione getting a job as a science teacher at the high school. But it came on a Monday morning, August 1st, 1987. I dressed up into what I thought a pastor should look like, grabbed my Bible, and I stood on the steps, and I walked forth. And from that point on, I was Pastor Dave. It changed my life. It changed how I saw myself, how others saw me. You had that same experience, doing whatever you did. If you're a teacher, uh, you know, your kids almost faint when they see you in public because they don't know how to deal with that paradigm. You know, you're a teacher, you're Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, and I didn't know you had a life outside this classroom. But that's where you are I, when we get married. We stand in front of an altar. We promise before God and people, our witnesses, that we are going to take each other in holy matrimony. We're never the same again. For some of us, it may even end negatively. We may get divorced. But still, that changes you. You're never the same again. You, you hold that baby in your hands. It's so exciting. I had three daughters all by C-section, and I got to peek over the little curtain as they were doing the surgery. And when that baby is lifted up out of Ione and I got to hold her, it was life-changing. I, I was a dad, a father. That was never going to change. So those are big events. We all can have those. We take an active role in those. But there's a second level of historic events. Those are the things that happen that we really have no control over. We're almost passive in them. Where were you when the trade centers went down? When those airplanes flew in there and all those people died? If you were around in those days, you know you've never been the same since. Our, our culture has never been the same since. People who lived through World War II or can say, oh, I know where I was when Kennedy was shot. Uh, we, we measure things almost by negative, uh, horrific historical events. Some of them are more positive. I remember uh, Neil Armstrong putting his foot upon the lunar surface. You know? And you say, wow, we as a people, as a nation, have never looked back. I often, that's why I love reading history, because I can see what happened to people. I get their, their journals, their diaries, and they didn't plan for these things. They didn't know it was coming, but all of a sudden it was true. They, they rode their buggies out to Manasseh, 
to the battlegrounds of the Civil War just to see this gentleman's war start, which they thought would be over in a matter of weeks, but it wasn't. And so we live life. You don't know when something like that is going to happen. People don't choose for it to happen, it just does. So those are two huge categories of events in life. But then there's a third one, and this one is a unique one. And this is, I would reserve, only for this Advent season. Christmas, the incarnation. According to Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. Nobody saw it coming. Everybody thought that God had checked out. He had forgotten us. He left us alone. He's no longer on the scene. We'd sinned so much that he went and found some other people on another planet, perhaps, to be their God. Or maybe it was all made up in the first place. It was just a cultic religious experience for our ancestors. 400 years, think about that. Malachi to Matthew. No one had heard from him. And yet to God, there's a covenant in place, a promise between God and his people. Does God forget? Can God take himself out of that covenant? I don't think so. So when God became a man, took upon himself the form of a man, and that baby cried in that manger, it is the most significant event that has ever happened in world history. Think about that. All the things I just mentioned, and they're so huge to us. We, we have great ceremonies to celebrate weddings and babies. There's all kinds of TV shows on those great historic events that have happened. And yet this baby came into the world and no one even knew it. Not the king, not the governments. There was no media, no Facebook, no Twitter. Just a young teenage girl, her very confused husband, some shepherds. Okay, throw in a drummer boy. Whatever you want. But no one knew. And yet God, he knew. He hadn't forgotten. Where does that leave us this morning? We had this messenger, and he came and he pronounced the beginning of Christ's ministry. He wasn't really even at Christmas in that sense. No one has a John the Baptist toddler standing in their manger scene. But because we compress time from our perspective, we put it all together. Behold, I send a messenger. And what's he messaging? Yeah. Has it happened? Well, yeah, that first advent came. No, <laughs> it really wasn't John's message, nor is it Malachi's. Their message, though they didn't know it at the time, was really pointing to what we would call a second advent, when Christ will return. And this time it's going to look much different. It won't be a soft glow of a winter night. It won't be angels and a star. There's going to be one foot planted in the Mediterranean, one foot planted on the Holy Land, and Jesus is going to stand. And there will be blood up to the horse's bridles, and God is going to bring judgment upon this world. What do we do with that? Well, it should motivate us, first of all. 
motivate us as Christians to tell everyone that the first advent has occurred. Jesus came. He went to the cross. He accomplished his purposes, and now salvation is offered to anyone who wants to come to him. They have to do that. Secondly, besides telling everyone about that, is that we should be prepared for the fact that judgment is coming. I I was reading Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. Jesus is saying, no one's going to see it coming. Uh, You remember that first advent? I just got done explaining it. 400 years of silence, and no one was prepared for that baby. They thought God had forgotten. It's too long. Second advent, we've already gone 2,000 years. And you can hear the critics, and not just the critics, but even believers, even Christians, Say, well, we got it wrong. He's not really returning. God has forgotten. But in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this. It will be just like the days of Noah. Right? People will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Right like they did in the days of Noah until the day that the door of the ark was closed. And those floodwaters came. Two people will be walking down a road. One will be taken. One will be left standing still. Be prepared. You don't know. From what we know from the Word of God, that second advent could happen at 12.08 this afternoon. And you say, hardly. Forget it, Foster. Well, I'm telling you, there's going to become a day when we're going to be able to mark it exactly when those clouds are going to roll back and we're going to hear the sound of the trump and the voice of the archangel and that second advent will happen. And those who know the Lord, wow, how fortunate, how wonderful. But those who don't, it says that they'll be crying for the rocks to fall upon them. You see, the value of the first advent is that it gives us a head start getting ready for that second advent. No one saw this first advent coming. Paul says it's the great mystery that has finally been revealed. That even the prophets, even Malachi, didn't quite understand what was going to happen in God's economy. But this is the truth. As you open up your Christmas presents this year, as you gather your family around and you write, uh, light the wreaths and you do all those things that you do as a tradition for Christmas, you watch your Hallmark movies. Remember this. There's a lost world out there. They need to hear the message. They need to avoid the judgment that is coming. The first advent is just a giant arrow pointing to the second. Who can endure it? Who can stand it? Only those who have been refined and purified. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, we want to be purified. We want to be washed in the blood of Christ. Oh, Father, you are so gracious to us. If we know you this morning, then we know your mercy. We know we deserve judgment, but you have given that to your son, Jesus Christ, and in its place, you've given us a new life, a new creation. Father, may we not be selfish with that. Will we not be piggish, but may we share it with those who have the greatest need for it, our family, our friends, those we work with. 
those we go to school with. Father, you are the focus of our life. Refine us over and over and over again if it means that we can be the most effective at bearing your message to a world that is lost. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.